The following is a presentation of the Open Door Bible Baptist Church and Pastor Chris Tice. For more audio and video content, please check us out on the web at www.opendoornj.org. We see here, uh, and and I'm going to ask your your forgiveness right off the bat, I am trying very hard to pronounce the name in a way that it won't be a distraction to you. Uh, This man that we looked at, his name is um, Levi. All right, I have to stop to think of that. In, in Africa, they call him Levi, and that's the name I want to keep saying. So if you hear that, that's what I'm talking about. Okay, but Levi uh, was also Matthew. Okay, he was the, uh, the apostle Matthew. And here, the first part of our passage that we look at, we see Jesus calling him to follow him and, uh, and to follow Jesus. And of course, Matthew left everything and followed Jesus. But here's what I want to draw your attention to here at first. In verse number, look at verse 14. It says, And as he, Jesus, passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus. And so I want you to notice that small little word that can often go unnoticed, but it says that he saw this man. I don't know about you, but there are many people that I pass through each day as I go through my life that I really don't see. You know, you walk by them, your eyes may glance at them, you may recognize there's a person there, But, you know, if you were pressed to recall what he looked like or, you know, you and I, many of us, we we couldn't do that. You know, because we really don't see a lot of people that we we come in contact with. They they go past, you know, in in most people, when you look at your your life and when you think about your life, most of us have ourselves as the central character. And, I mean, that's kind of natural. You know, it's like I went to work and I did this and I did this. And the customers that come in, it's kind of all about how they affected me and not always so much about whatever might be going on in their life. And so a lot of us, we just walk through life and, and we really only see any, anything that we see is all about how it affected us. And very few people, even very few Christians, have the ability to be able to take time and to see people and see what they are really going through and to see you know, who they really are. Jesus shows us a dis- different example. Here he was, and you can imagine, this seems like it would be in a busy area, maybe in a marketplace, and here is Matthew, and he's sitting at the receipt of custom, it says. In short, he was a tax collector, and we know how much we all love tax collectors. Well, the feeling was mutual there, okay? They, they, they did not care much for tax collectors. They, they gave them a name even, and the name of a Jewish tax collector who would collect taxes from Jews and give them to the Romans was called a publican here, and that's what Matthew is called. And so that was, Matthew, on top of being a tax collector, most of his own people, the Jews, looked at him as a traitor. They said, look, we are being controlled by Rome and by the Romans, and here you are taking money from your brothers and sisters and giving it to the Roman government. And so this was what what Matthew did. It, It was the job that he had. And so many Jews purposely didn't want to see him. They wanted to look past him. And many others, with the hustle and bustle that went on in the marketplace, just failed to see him. You know, he was just another person. You know, some of you, if you've been in other countries maybe and you've gone into the market, it's a different experience than when you go, like, to ShopRite or something. All right, in in the market in some of these places, I can remember when we were there in Zambia, you know, as you go, you go and you see, like, there's a whole section, and it's all about tomatoes. Everybody's selling tomatoes. 
Okay, but they're all selling tomatoes, and everybody's calling, oh, my, my tomatoes are better than her tomatoes, and blah, blah. You know, everybody's calling you to their little stall here. And the truth is, when I look at them, I mean, they all look about the same. They all got flies flying around them, and they all, you know, they're, they're all about the same quality and all this kind of thing. And it's really, you know, hard to say, well, this, she has better, you know, tomatoes than this one or that, or, you know, and, and, but that's the marketplace. It's not a quiet place. It's not some place where you would just go and, and sort of zone out. There's a lot of uh, things that are calling for your attention. And so is the case here where Jesus and his disciples were at this moment and all this that's going on, and the Bible says that Jesus saw this man. He noticed him. He looked at him, and he saw who he was. We th- and this is, look, this is common with Jesus. Think about it, you can write this down, but in Luke chapter 19, if you were to look at it, Luke 19 tells the story of another tax collector. His name was Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus, again, just like we mentioned with Matthew, he was probably somebody that most people wanted to ignore. Okay, He was a tax collector, he was a publican. On top of that, the Bible even tells us that he was not even an honest tax collector. He went ahead and not only did he take the rightful money from the Jews and paid in taxes, he would steal from, from everybody that came his way. And so he would find a way to, to charge them more and pocket the extra, and he was just, he was a bad guy. And the Bible goes out of the way to, to mention to us that not only was he somebody that people wanted to ignore, he was also somebody that often was easy to ignore, because the Bible says he was a short, of short stature. You couldn't see him. He, it was easy for him to get lost in the crowd. It was very normal for you to literally overlook him. You know, he was, he was a short person there. And it talks about the time when Jesus was coming to his, to his area and uh, everybody was thronging the streets to try to see Jesus. And of course, you can picture the story, but here's Zacchaeus. He can't, he can't get through and he can't see over, you know, the, the other people that are in front of him. And he finally gets this idea that, hey, I've got to see Jesus. He climbs up into the tree. But do you know what? Zacchaeus did not expect Jesus to see him. He wanted to see Jesus but he didn't expect Jesus to take any notice of him. There were thousands of people around. Here he is, a short little man, as as funny as that might have looked, climbing up into a sycamore tree just to get a glimpse of Jesus. And again, most people didn't even notice. He was behind them. He climbed up the tree behind them, as we know. But Jesus here, the Bible says that as he walked by, he looked up. You know, I, I I don't expect he was looking up in every tree, but he knew Zacchaeus was in that tree. He looked up, and the Bible says he saw Zacchaeus. And he called to him. And he said, I'm coming to your house today. And we know that eventually salvation, uh, that very day, came into the life of Zacchaeus. Why? Because Jesus saw him. Think about it. Look in Luke chapter 10, if you will. Another passage. We'll be back to Mark in a moment. Look at Luke chapter 10 and this parable that Jesus teaches us. We, we call it the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I want you to notice here that there's a situation where this man is, as the Bible describes him, half dead. He's been beaten by people who've stolen from him and left him for dead. Look at verse number uh, 30. It says, And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Verse 31, And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, uses the same term, but he didn't see the way Jesus saw it says, when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Can you picture that? Ooh, let me get away from that. that you know, he, went, he, he crossed the road to make sure that he didn't pass near this man. 
Verse 32, and likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, he came and looked on him, and he passed by on the other side. So here's a Levite, he looked. He may have even lingered for a little while as he looked at this man who was half dead, but he kept right on going. Verse 33, but a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And then we know that he was able to, 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 to you know, uh, treat his wounds and carry him over to the, to the inn and take care of his lodging for a while. And, you know, and this Samaritan, he was Christ-like in his response. He saw this man, and the Bible says he had compassion on him. And that's Jesus also. When Jesus sees people, he has compassion on those people. He sees deeper than most people see. He sees beyond the surface. He didn't just look at uh, Matthew and at Zacchaeus and say, like every other Jew of those days would have, oh, there's a dirty tax collector. There's a corrupt publican. There's somebody who's probably a thief. He didn't see all that stuff. I mean, I'm sure he knew about it. He was God after all. He knew, but he chose not to see and dwell on that. He, he chose to see their need for salvation. He chose to see, you know, that, that they, they were somebody for whom he was going to die. Do you see people like that? Look, all three of these uh, people in the, good, in the story of the Good Samaritan saw the same thing. They saw somebody that was half dead. But the Samaritan saw something deeper, and it moved him to compassion and to action. What about you? It's interesting to notice that in, even with Jesus, when he saw Zacchaeus and when he saw Matthew and he, he saw them and he ministered to them and he even went into their house, you know what the majority of the people around were saying? They, they still couldn't see what Jesus saw. It wasn't like they said, oh, yeah, we, we should be seeing people the same way Jesus does. No. W- what did they start to do? Go back to our, go back to our uh, Mark chapter 2 there. Look at verse number 17. I'm sorry, verse, uh, verse 16. It says, And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? Notice, they criticized him for being around sinners. They said, how, how, he saw these men, he must know who they are. How can he allow himself to be defiled like that? How can he allow himself to, to, to mingle with those kinds of people? How is it that Jesus can, can sit in the house of a publican and a sinner? They couldn't believe that Jesus would do that. But here's the thing. When Jesus sees people, he makes a difference. He spoke to them. He ministered to them. Are you and I Christ-like in that way also? I mean, when we, let me just bring it down to where it really, you know, hits home here for us as a church. When we bring people on the bus route from the bus ministry, how do we see those people? I mean, you see them, but what do you think about when you see them? I mean, is it, oh man, I can't believe they're, you know, like the Pharisees said, oh, he's defiling himself. He's going into their house. He's eating with them. Do we say, oh, look at the mess that's left after the bus route leaves. Do we say, ah, we got to clean up, you know, the whole gym. It's just in disarray, and there's candy wrappers here and there and everywhere. How How do we see people? You see, Christ saw. He knew they were sinners. Look, and, and you, know what, you know what the awesome thing about being in, in a church is? This is a hospital for sinners. Jesus used that picture. He said, look, the whole, they don't need a physician or a doctor. Nobody goes to the hospital. It's rare for you to go to the hospital when you're in perfectly good condition. It's rare for you to be 100% healthy and find yourself, you know, sitting in a doctor's office. That's not a common occurrence. The ones who go to the doctor are the ones that are sick and recognize it. Well, you know what? The ones who come to Jesus 
and who come to a spiritual hospital place, which is what a church should be, they're going to be sinners. You're going to have people walk in those doors that have baggage. And so did we. And, and so do we in a lot of cases. But so did we when we came to Christ. And so we need to be able to see beyond what everybody else sees. We need to see the way Jesus sees. And Jesus looked at those people and said, yes, they're sinners, but that's why I came. Your, your first uh, uh, fill in the blank right there is that let Jesus be this in your life. Let him be the savior of sinners. Let him be the savior of sinners. Look, sinners should be welcomed in a church. I know you're going to say, ah, you know, it doesn't sound right. Church, holy place, all No, sinners should be welcomed in a church. They should be welcomed. Now we're going to get a little bit further. Of course, Jesus will, he receives sinners. He saves sinners. He's not going to keep us that way. He's going to try to change us. Yes, he's going to, he wants to to change everything about us. I'm all for that. But you know what? We have to be a place that allows sinners to come in, you know, to our little club. It's not a club. This is a church of the living God. Sinners need to feel welcome here. They need to understand that they're loved. They need to understand that there is help. They need to understand, hey, when you go into the hospital and you're sick and you don't feel well, the doctors don't all look at you like, oh, why are you here? You know, couldn't you come when you were feeling better? Couldn't you got dressed up before you came to the hospital? No, they, they not only... You know, and again, I know I'm not going to get into all our hospital situations. Sometimes you wait longer than you feel like you should in the ER and so on and so on. But here's the point, okay? You should be able to feel welcomed when you, hey, you're here. Let's get a stretcher. Let's get a wheelchair. Let's get whatever's needed. Let's get you to the place where you can be helped. Look, we're a spiritual hospital. People come in that door. That's the same thought that you and I should have as they walk in the door. They're coming. They need Jesus. Yes, they don't look, you know, whatever. The way they look, as they walk in the door, it seems like it's a messed up situation. You know what? That's the best situation because they realize they need the Lord. That's why they're here. And so let's make sure that we see people the way that Jesus sees them. What qualifies a person to be noticed and ministered to by Jesus? Here it is. You must be a sinner. You must be one that realizes that you're a sinner. That's it. I mean, that, that's where salvation is at. That's the first step. Until a person recognizes that they are a sinner, they cannot be saved. If you came in here thinking, I'm a pretty good person, I know other sinners, and I'm not one of them, you know what? The Bible says, I, Jesus didn't come for you. He says, I didn't come for those that are whole. I came for those that are sick. I didn't come for those who are perfect and who are good. He didn't come for the good or the righteous, it says. Look at verse 17. Jesus heard it. He said unto them, they that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. Look at this. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. How did you walk in the door today? How did you walk in any door when you first started to come to Christ? Did you come as a righteous person, just trying to find validation for that righteousness? Jesus said, I didn't come for that. I came for sinners. I came for people who who are sinners and recognize it. And that's where we all need to start from if we're going to allow Jesus to be our Savior. Jesus is the Savior of sinners. Until you admit that you're a sinner, you cannot be saved. And again, I don't know who, who I'm talking to here. I trust and hope that many in this room are believers in Christ and you've been saved. But you know what? Until you recognize yourself as a sinner, there is no salvation. There is no salvation for righteous people, self righteous people. There is no salvation until you and I recognize that we're a sinner in the need of a Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen, he wants, you to, he wants to be your Savior. 
but he doesn't want to stop there. Let me give you fair warning. Okay, as we just said with the first point, Jesus is the Savior of sinners. But here's the, the second part. Jesus doesn't intend for you to stay that way. Yes, he wants sinners to come. He, he, he wants sinners to be saved. He's looking for sinners. He's the Savior of sinners, but he doesn't want you to stay like that. Number two, well, who is Jesus? Who should we let Jesus be in our life? We should let him be the Savior of sinners. Number two, we should let him be the shifter of the status quo. In other words, he changes everything. When he comes in, when you let him in, he wants to change everything. He's not just saying, well, I'm just going to clean up some of the dirty spots. He says, I want to change it all. I want to change everything about you. Look at our verses in verse number 18 down through verse 22. We see this happening uh, as he discusses some things. Look at verse 18. It says, and the disciples of John and of the Pharisees, they used to fast. So they're saying, Jesus, those disciples, they fasted all the time. But your disciples, they don't fast. He went on and, and, and they asked different questions like that. And Jesus said this. He gave the, his, his answer in verse 21 and 22. He said this. No man also soweth a piece of new cloth onto an old garment. Else a new piece that filleth it up taketh away from the old and the rent is made worse. Notice what he says. He says, I didn't come here to patch, you know, some of the, some of the holes that you might have in your life. That's not why I came. Think about it, an old garment, you know, if you've got little boys running around, you understand they get holes in the knees. And what do we try to do? I mean, we don't want to buy a whole new garment. I don't want to spend $20, $30, $40 on a new, new pair of pants. I want to find a patch, you know, and sew it in, and hopefully that's going to last them for a few more months. All right? I mean, that, that's, I understand that. Jesus said, I didn't come to be a patch. I didn't come just where you've got a few holes that you notice are kind of unsightly, and you want those things to be covered up, so I'm going to patch that area of your life, and that area of your life, and that area of your life, and that area. He said, I want you to be completely new. I want you to be totally different than you were before. Let's continue. He says, and no man, verse 22, putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine doth burst the bottles, and the wine is spilled, and the bottles will be marred, but new wine must be put into new bottles. Notice this. Jesus wants to change your life. Look at that wine. Okay, that wine, he says, I don't want to just put a new thing inside the same old body that you had. I don't want to just put my spirit. Oftentimes, uh, the Holy Spirit, you know, can be pictured through this uh, filling up the inside, the wine, the new wine. He says, I don't want to put the Holy Spirit and then have the same old vessel on the outside. He says, I want to change it all. I want to change every part of you. And so he wants to change your life. These verses that we looked at in verse 18 through 22 are all about changing from how things have been done in the past. He says, look, you talk about fasting, I'm bringing something new. I'm the bridegroom. This is the time for celebration. There'll be a time for my followers to fast. And by the way, we live in that time now. He said, there'll be a time for my followers to fast when the bridegroom is no longer here with them. But he said, look, I want things to be all new. Don't try to just fit me into your old religion. And by the way, that speaks to us as well. Whatever religion you came out of, don't just say, well, let me take Jesus and kind of add him to all my beliefs that I had before. Jesus says, I want to change everything. I want to shift the status quo from where it was to something entirely new. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Jesus says this, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. They're dead. Behold, all things are become new. That's what Jesus wants for you and me. 
Again, he doesn't just want to pour the new wine into the old bottle. He's not interested in, in that. He wants a completely new vessel. And he'll do the changing. That's not, you don't have to do it. He's the changer, uh, the shifter of the status quo. He changes everything, but he wants you and I to, 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 to be willing to allow that to happen. He's not interested in putting the new wine into old bottles. Here's my question to us. How have we been changed? If you've been saved, if you've, you've recognized that you're a sinner and you've called on him for salvation, if you've done that, here's my next, the next question that Jesus asks us as we just go through this passage. He says, I want everything to be different about you. I want you to change. I want to change you. He says, I, I'm not asking you to change yourself. I want you to let me change you. When Jesus comes into a life, he wants to change you and do this, make you more like him. That's what he wants. That, that, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the mold that we're supposed to go in, and we're supposed to be a new vessel that's, that's molded into his, his image. That's what God wants in your life and mine once I allow Jesus to be my Savior. He says he wants to change you too. He wants to make everything new. You know what? When I allow him to change me, when I allow him to mold me more into his image, you know what that brings? It brings joy and peace. I mean, you, you may say, oh, it's so hard. I don't want to change. I'm, I'm comfortable. It's been 30 years, 40 years, 20 years, 15 years. I've been the way I am. I don't want to change. He says, but you know what? When you change, I give you that peace and joy that only comes from me. But you and I have to allow him not just to be our Savior, but also to be the one who changes things in our life, the shifter of the status quo. Think about this. Look, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to, to Jesus really living and dwelling in you, it's like when you talk to your kids about change, uh, cleaning their room. You know, I know my wife will sometimes ask Elijah, did you clean your room? And almost always the answer is yes. I mean, I've hardly ever heard him say, no, I didn't. It's always yes. But you know what? That talk often, when, I, when we go and look at the condition of the room, when we go and see, you know, what does it actually look like in the room, his definition of, yes, I clean my room, and our definition of, I don't, the condition doesn't speak to what you're saying, they're entirely different. Sometimes it's that way for a believer as well. Just because you and I say, yes, I've been saved, here, here's the better, uh, the better practice. Let's look at our life. Has, has the condition of our life changed? Has he shifted things? Has he changed things in my life? Look, if Jesus comes in, if you invite him in, again, I mentioned earlier, this is a fair warning. Jesus wants everybody, every sinner can come to him. He says, come, I want to be your savior, but here's where the fair warning comes in. He wants to change everything about you. He doesn't just want you to come and be content in that sin and continue in that sin, and at least you get to go to heaven when you're when you die, no. He, he wants to save you, but he also wants to change everything about the condition of your life. Is that something that you're willing to do? Look, if you're not seeing change in your life, or perhaps you're frustrated with the speed or lack thereof of the change that's coming in your life, then, then you have been unwilling to truly make him the Lord or the sovereign of your life. Look, up until the point of salvation and being born again, you and I, we were the kings of our life. We did whatever we wanted. We did whatever we felt like. We did what seemed right unto us. And the Bible says there are ways that seem right unto a man, but sadly, the end thereof are the ways of death, but we didn't realize it. We just, we did what, what seemed right in the moment. And whatever we wanted to do, we did. And again, it felt good until kind of the consequences of it played out. 
and we saw that it wasn't so great. But you know what? We didn't know any other way. We got to do whatever we wanted to do. And so before salvation, that was you and that was me. But you know what? Even though you were the king of your life, you had sovereign control. When Jesus came in, he wanted to change all of that. He didn't want you to sit on the throne of your life anymore. He wanted to. He doesn't want you to do whatever seems right to you. He wants you to lean under his understanding. He didn't want you to, to continue down the path that you thought was best. He said, I want you to yield to me. Now, this is a big change. This is hard for us to do. It's hard to give him the control of your life because when you do, he changes things. It's not enough. You know, you don't just say, look, think about this. Some of you parents who uh, are enjoying, I don't know if enjoying is the right word, but you've got kids who are are starting to drive, all right, and they want control of the car, man. They want to be able to drive the car and practice. I can remember, I don't don't even know why I thought this way, but when I was 17, 18 years old, like every other 17 and 18-year-old in New Jersey, I wanted to drive. And so after church, I'd ask my, I had my permit or whatever, Mom, Dad, can I drive home? Or all these things. You know what, now, I, I, I wish somebody would come and drive me around. It would be awesome. You know, just sit in the back, do nothing. But, you know, in those days, man, I couldn't wait. And I had a twin brother, so we had to split the driving, you know, things. Sometimes he drove, sometimes I drove. It was a big, you know, fight and argument and all this. And now, again, I say, if my brother would come and say, hey, I want to drive you around, I'd, I, all right, let me get in the passenger seat. He couldn't tell me fast enough. All right, but here's the point. Look, those, they want control of the wheel. You know, they say, I, and, and you know what, what a, a, a young driver hates the most? Now, sometimes they need it, but they hate the most for mom and dad to, you know, reach over and try to help steady the wheel. You know, I don't know if some of you do this whole thing, you know, those, those uh, the teacher's cars where they got a brake on both sides, if you pretend you got a brake on the one side or whatever to slow them down. Right, but they want control of the wheel, you know. And, and, and that's a hard thing to do. You know, for you now, who's been used to driving, and they were, you were taxiing them all over the place, now they want to be in the driver's seat. And you've got to sit there, and it's one of the most nerve-wracking things. Now, look, some of that is, uh, is, is well-placed, okay, because they don't really know what they're doing at this point, all right? But it's also hard for us to, to kind of let go and just, just allow them to go where they want to go, you know, and drive how they want to drive. But that's what God wants in your life. And sadly, for many Christians, that's just as hard. It's hard to sit there in that passenger seat and let God go where he wants to go. It's hard for you and I to not have control. And we oftentimes, no, Lord, hey, wait, you forgot about going this way. And the Lord says, I know where I'm going. He continues. You slam on the brake because you don't want to go where God's taking you. But again, that is what the Christian life is all about. He says, look, I want, I want that seat. I want to be the one in control. I want to be the Lord of your life. Think about this. Look at verse 23 and 20 through 28. When he comes in, and he, you give him control of your life, he will change things, and that's what we should want anyway. Look at verses 23 through 28. We just read it a moment ago. Look at verse 28 especially. Okay, they're talking all about Sabbath days and different things and all of this. And, uh, and Jesus basically makes this statement in verse 28. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. He is the sovereign. Here's your answer in the blank there. He is the sovereign or the Lord of the Sabbath. Let Jesus be that. Now you say, what does that mean? I mean, we don't really, the Sabbath is a Jewish practice and it's not something that we really have a lot to do with. Look, let, let me talk to you a little bit about the Sabbath. What, what the Pharisees were saying right here, 
All right, Jesus, what was he doing? Look in verse, uh, look in verse 23. They were walking through a cornfield and they picked some ears of corn because the disciples were hungry and they began to eat it. And the Pharisees started to, to accuse them and say, look, you're doing things that are unlawful to do on the Sabbath day. And so Jesus, of course, brings them back to history of something that David had done. And in the end, he says he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Here's the point. The Pharisees were basically saying, no, you, you can't do those things. Those things are against our laws. We have our own ways of doing things. Here's the interesting thing. It's interesting that the Pharisees really focused, really the only complaint they had about Jesus. Okay? They, they tried to trip, trip him up and to trap him in different questions and things like that. But if you read it, you'll find, uh, I'll draw your attention, you can look at this later, Matthew chapter 22, in verse 15 and verse 46, they're trying to catch him in some sort of, you know, trap with his words. And in the end, it says that they just decided there was no use to ask him any more questions. Because every time they asked him, he always had an answer, and they could never trap him in their words. And so as much as they tried to accuse Jesus in different ways, you know what they always seemed to end up centering on? It was on the Sabbath. They, they always seemed to be able to catch him doing something that was against the Sabbath law. Now, here's the thing. He wasn't doing anything against God's law. It's just that the Jews had made so many extra laws that they could catch him in all those different laws. And so he was breaking their law, but not breaking God's law. But here's the thing. To a Jew, the Sabbath day was and is a very important part of their life. In many ways, the observance of the Sabbath day is what set them apart or gave them their identity. Though the Jews in this time when Jesus was on the earth, they were under Roman rule, the Sabbath, allowing, they, they had the, the permission from Rome, and it was, it was allowable and acceptable that they were able to observe the Sabbath day. And so this was the one area in their life where they could control it. The Romans had control over everything else. They had to pay taxes and from, in their own land. They had to do that and so on and so on. Okay, but the Sabbath, they were able to have a little bit of control over that. And so that gave them some semblance of control in their life. And so they were able to keep that day, and they were left and allowed to impose as many rules, however arbitrary they may have been, to that day. And they did it. Man, they found all kinds of ways that they could control the Sabbath. And again, it allowed them to feel some kind of control. I'll give you a couple of, couple of ones that, again, just searching on the Internet, a few things that, that, again, to us may seem very, you know, outlandish, some of these rules. But here were some of the laws for the Sabbath day. It says... It is permitted to tear a package to get the food inside, but it should be avoided to tear this package if you're going to tear through any writing on the package. All right? So you could not, if, if there was writing on the outside of the box, you couldn't open it unless you could somehow open it without tearing the writing on the box. It says, likewise, if words were stamped on the edge of a book, like a library book or something, to open that book on the Sabbath day, you know, you were separating those words, and that was something that was against the Sabbath law. Number two, another, another interesting thing, you could not trap things, okay? We usually think of trapping animals, but it was even included that you couldn't trap a fly or a mosquito in your hand on the Sabbath day. This was considering breaking the Sabbath law. It also talks about uh, under the heading of shearing. You could not shear your sheep. You also could not really shear yourself, all right? It was not allowed for you to shave on the Sabbath day. Uh, you couldn't, ladies, you couldn't pluck your eyebrows on the Sabbath day. I don't know if that would really, whatever, but you couldn't do that. All right. You couldn't even cut your fingernails 
Um, you were even not really supposed to comb your hair because that, especially for some of us, that takes hair out. Every time you comb it, it comes out. All right? And so you couldn't, these were, these were some of the laws of the Sabbath day. And so these were, were areas where the Jews said, we want to control this day. We, we can't control a lot of things in our life, but we want to control this. And so they did that. Now Jesus, notice what he did. Mo, the most common day for him to do a miracle was when? The Sabbath day. If you read through, many of his fa- you know, most familiar and well-known miracles were done on the Sabbath day. Over and over and over and over again he did that. Why? Because he was saying, you need to let go of control of all these things. That included the Sabbath day. Jesus said, the Son of Man, talking about himself, I am Lord even of the Sabbath. Here's the thing. We don't celebrate the Sabbath. I understand. But you know what? The Sabbath symbolized much more than just rest to the Jewish people. It symbolized family. It symbolized their relationship to the community, to the world around them. It symbolized their belief in God. And as beautiful as some of these symbols are, we can also see that there was a huge desire to protect that day because it meant so much to the children of Israel. Here's my question to us. Here's where it gets, we can apply it. Do we have areas in our life that we are also protective of? You know, you may not, look, again, the Sabbath, I know we do have some who have the Jewish descent and you you have celebrated the Sabbath and things like that. Many of others of us, you know, that's more of a foreign thing that we've just kind of learned about. But here's what I'm going to ask you. Do you have areas that, that are protective to you? Like, are there areas that you would say, Lord, you can be the Lord of every other area of my life, but not this one. I want to be the Lord of this part of my life. Where do you say something like that to the Lord? Is it with your family? Is it with, you know, in business, your work, school, maybe your entertainment, maybe your health, your lifestyle, your music? There are so many areas of our life, and many of us, we, like the Jews, protecting the Sabbath day and, and making all these kind of barriers. No, you're not allowed to do these things in this area of my life. What area of your life do you do that for? I mean, are there things that you say, Lord, yes, when, I'll come to church every Sunday. I'll do that. But Lord, don't ask me to change how I live at home. Lord, I'll do this, but again, work, that's an area you're not welcome in there, Lord. I want to keep you out from there. I want to have control over work. Lord, I understand you saved me and I'll follow you in many areas, but Lord, when it comes to my entertainment, I'll just, I'm just going to turn things off as far as my, 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 you know, my obligation to you and I'm going to be entertained the way I want to be or music or whatever it is. You see, God says, I want to be the Lord even of the Sabbath, even of that part of your life that is most holy and sacred and important to you. It gives you your identity. It's the thing you know, that you want to have control over and it's the last thing for you to give up. He says, I want to be the Lord there just as well. Are you allowing that? Am I allowing that? Is he the Lord of every part of my life? Look at the prodigal son. Look, the prodigal son got to be in control of his life. He got everything he demanded. He said, Father, give me my inheritance right now and I want it. And he got it. He got to control that. He was 100% in control. He left the house the care of his father, he was able to do whatever he wanted. And you know what whatever he wanted ended up? He ended up eating food with the pigs. He had lost all his money. He had no friends. He just lost it all. And you know what he said in his own mind? Look, his life had spun out of control. It had become complete chaos. And by the way, that is what will happen to a Christian who says, I want to control this part of my life. You ever notice that? 
Sometimes the part that you're trying to control the most is the part that's just spinning out of control the most because you won't yield to the Lord. You and I won't submit to Him, and so we hold on tighter. They say this in sports all the time. You know, like uh, if you squeeze, for example, you're trying to throw a football, you squeeze it too tight, it doesn't come out nice. If you squeeze the bat too tight, you can't, you know, you, you need to let go there. Well, here's the same thing in our life. If we try to control something so much, often that's the very area that begins to spin out of control. And so that's what happened to the prodigal son. Complete chaos, out of control, nothing good. He had everything he wanted. He got all that he demanded, but it, it didn't turn out well. Okay, he didn't, let, he didn't let his father and he didn't let the Lord be his Lord. Until this, finally, that prodigal had to humble himself and he had to seek to be restored to his father. Here's the point. Whatever's going on in your life, whatever area that the Lord is identifying right now where you say, you know, I haven't really given control to God in this area. I haven't really yielded to Him. And, and now I can see, yes, it's, it's a little bit out of control. It's the area that's just that, that I haven't given to the Lord. If all that is, is going on in your mind and heart, you know what? Be like that prodigal and seek to be restored. Here's the good thing. Jesus is the ultimate restorer. Look at chapter 3. I understand it's a different chapter here. We're going to read the first five or six verses. But you know what? In, in, you know, when Scripture was originally written, there were no chapter breakups or any of that. And so this goes right along with what we're talking about. Everything was out of control because they didn't allow the Lord to be the Lord even of the Sabbath. And now look at verse 1 through uh, 6. We see this. And he entered Jesus again into the synagogue. And there was a man there which had a withered hand. And they watched him whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day. Look, again, it's going to be on the Sabbath day that they might accuse him. And he said unto the men which had, which had the withered hand, stand forth. And he said unto them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath day or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they held their peace. And when he looked around about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole. As the other. Listen, whatever part of your life might be shriveled, and here's the last blank Jesus is, let him be the restorer of that which is shriveled. Let him be, this man had a withered hand. And according to the, the Sabbath laws, okay, if Jesus would have allowed those Jews and even that man who was also a Jew, if he would have allowed you know, them to have that control that they were trying to exert on the Sabbath day, that he couldn't do this and he couldn't do that and he couldn't heal this man on the Sabbath day, there would have been no restoration. Okay, but if you let him be the Lord of the Sabbath, whatever that Sabbath is in your life, if you let him be the Lord of that sacred corner of your life, if you let him be the Lord of that area that you, the last area that you've yet to give control to him, if you let him be the Lord of that, he says... He can restore everything that was shriveled. He can fix it all. Look, sad thing was, by not yielding to Jesus and making Him Lord, those laws that they used to control their life almost blocked the restoration that Jesus desired them to see and for this man to have. Look, oftentimes, the areas in our life that need restoration is the one area that you won't yield to God. It's shriveled up. It's dying but we won't yield it to the Lord even then. We are comfortable with it. We feel like we're in control. But here's the truth. Jesus can restore whatever is shriveled and broken in your life. But you must yield to Him. 
It's hard to do sometimes. It's hard to let go. But it's the only way to get that restoration that we so desperately want. Will you let Jesus be these things in your life? We know who Jesus is. We learned about that. And I hope that you understand that truth already. But once you know who he is, you and I have to let him be a few things in our life. One, maybe you need him to be your savior. You're a sinner. You recognize that. If you recognize that, he says today, he will save you. Would you call on him and ask him to do that? Number two, look, maybe you've understood he's the savior. Have you allowed him to shift everything in your life? Does he have free reign to change your life whatever way he wants to? Will you allow that? Have you allowed him to be the Lord, the King, the Sovereign of every section of your life? Or are there some sections that you're still walling off from him like the Jews did with the Sabbath day? And then finally, if you will yield to him and allow him to be your Lord, he can restore everything that is broken and shriveled and and withered in your life. But you've got to yield to him. If God has used this ministry in any way to be a blessing to you, please take a moment to send us an email to info at opendoornj.org. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at opendoornj.org. Thanks for tuning in.